Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Alpoff gray Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 80 of Theater Forward. 80, that's a good number. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And for this episode, we are going back to the mailbag to answer some questions from you. And I'm going to hand it right off to you, Julie, to kick us off. Sure. I have um, a a question from our good friend, um, playwright, actor, director, Marie Kohler, who asks, do you think that the COVID-19 era will change the balance between New York City theater and regional theaters? Will it enhance regional theater or no? Um, I'm going to jump in with that question and then look forward to hearing what you all have to say. But um, I think we're already seeing it. I think we're seeing regional theater in a um, positioned better right now uh, than the New York theaters that rely so much on tourism and people getting on planes and going and seeing the shows um, who uh, are uncomfortable getting on planes. And then because of all of these plays that are being canceled, you know, and performances are stopped and then they're um, resumed. There's there's not the confidence that the show you've just bought tickets for will actually happen. So are not making that journey. And I think regional theaters are benefiting from that. I think that um, we're seeing that the audiences in Wisconsin are going to their local theaters and supporting their their local uh, in-town theaters far more than the New York theaters. My thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I as, as I, um, I, the question confuses me because of course, New York is a regional theater in relation to this <laughs> true center of the theater universe, which is Chicago, USA, greatest theater city in America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been teaching New York how to make theater for decades and nothing about the pandemic will change that. But I do think, Julie, to your point, not only is it about audiences going to the theater, I think because most regional theaters are smaller, Um, They're built to take risks, have always been built to take risks that New York has been historically unwilling uh, to take. Uh, And I think that will continue. uh, And I'm not just talking about Broadway. I mean, I think even off Broadway, the scale Mm -hmm. is so different that unless you're really off, 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 where you do see great experimental work in New York. Um, it's just easier to take risks elsewhere. And so, you know, not notwithstanding the fact that New Yorkers seem to think that the entire country is flyover country, um, it's within that flyover country that they, you know, want to derogate as filled with a bunch of provincials where you are seeing people being able to be adventuresome in ways that you won't elsewhere. And I think we will lead New York back. Um, and that's not to say there haven't been some really exciting shows that have taken place this year in, in New York, but I think I think that we will point the way. If I can, so I, I don't disagree with with all the things that, that you're both saying, but I may inject um, a little bit of, of pessimism or a, a slightly sour note into the conversation, which is that I, I think some of the major institutional ways that our field is looked at have not changed as a result of this pandemic. 
in ways that they should have changed. Mm. Um, you know, there's still, there are only a handful of full-time national theater critics left in this country. They cover for the most part, just what's happening in New York, occasionally what's happening in Chicago. Um, there was a, a brief window of time when the, the, um, late lamented Terry Teachout would cover digital theater that was happening around the country during the early days of the pandemic. Um, he is gone. I have not seen anyone sort of standing up to take his place. Um, you know, it remains the Tony awards is the big thing that anybody pays attention to, even if there's, even as in last year's awards, when there was very, almost nothing happening to be talked about at the Tony awards. And I, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I, um, incredibly disheartened at um, the way some of the major institutions like Actors' Equity have um, really neglected their putting time and attention to support the theaters that have actually been producing over these past couple of years. And that was something that I had hoped might evolve a little bit. You know, pre-pandemic, we could kind of understand why um, first priority always went to New York, went to Broadway, went to the major institutional theaters there. They were, they, the, their economics were a scale so much larger than ours. The big Broadway tours were a scale economically so much larger than regional theaters. Um, but then the pandemic happened and regional theaters were the ones doing the work. Regional theaters were the ones employing union members. Tours were down, Broadway was down. Regional theaters kept producing. And I really hoped that that would be an opportunity to improve um, how we were seen as regional theaters by these national organizations. And it didn't happen. At least it didn't happen in ways that are demonstrable. And so that's, that's my slight sour note in the conversation. But I, I agree with you, Julie, that um, theater lovers have seen the proof that their regional theaters are here for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and these past couple of years have really um, underlined that message. And I hope that those audiences will um, double down on their support for us as we go through these next few kind of scary rebuilding years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All fair. I yeah, agree I don't with disagree you, Jen. Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We still have work to do. We have work yes. to do. Well, let's let's turn to a, a question that will be uh, maybe a little more fun to answer. I'm going to uh, have you do that one, Mike. Uh, yes, this is a question from our, our dear friend, Michael Cody, one of the um, really just wonderful uh, uh, directors in the Chicago, Madison, Milwaukee areas, directed in all three cities. Also, just a shout out to the amazing work that Michael has been doing in the past few years, uh, more timely than ever, uh, to raise awareness within the theater community of gun violence um, and to think hard about the ways in which we can use the theater to not only reach young people, um, but to reach audiences generally about this issue through project enough, hashtag enough. Um, Michael sends a question which um, has nothing to do with gun violence, thankfully. It's what dream aspirational project would each of you like to work on? Um, and I'll start by uh, invoking uh, a name and a play, a 
free plays, actually, which I have mentioned on this podcast before, which I am dying to see done somewhere outside of New York. So I'm about to contradict everything I said <laughs> five minutes ago. And that's the um, Tom Stoppard Coast of Utopia trilogy, which mm-hmm. requires a raft of actors. I mean, it, you need like 40 actors to do it well. Um, there are three plays set in what seems like the most obscure corner of the universe ever, which is 19th century Russia uh, and the revolutionary movement um, uh, that uh, arose there and then you know, you know, migrated into Russian exiles in other parts of Europe and in Britain. Um, but what's so great about all three of these plays is not just that they're smart. I mean, it's Stoppard, right? But that they are really meditating in ways that are absolutely timely now, more timely than when they came out 20 years ago, about what we mean and want by revolution. What happens when the slogans we throw around and the words we use get disconnected from the reality on the ground? What does the left, is the left thinking hard enough about the ways in which their beautiful and inspiring visions can actually reach people? I mean, we're about to head into an election cycle where this particular topic is in the news every single day and should be for a democratic party that's long overdue uh, uh, for a reckoning about how to approach some of these issues. And Stoppard, whose you know, politics are more conservative than mine are certainly, probably than anybody's on this podcast, asks with healthy skepticism, what is what the hell are we doing and why are we doing it? It's a question for the theater community as it thinks through what, what kind of theater it wants to make. Um, I just I would just wish we could see these plays um, somewhere um, like in Chicago or in Wisconsin. It would make me so happy. And to work on it as a dramaturg. Oh, my God, I would be in pig heaven. I seriously would be so happy. There would be so much to do. Yeah. That is wonderful, Mike. And I'm going to go for less heady. Um, again, I'm 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 picking up from uh, uh, New York, too. Um But I'll tell you the one thing that I've seen in the last, what, seven years that I thought there's no way I can do this. But wow, Um, that was Sleep No More, Um, Mm. the immersive theater um, in a, you know, on the west side in an old church. And it was the way it was done. they, They say it's the Scottish play. But my goodness, I went to every room trying to figure out where, um, you know, what scene is this? What's happening here? It doesn't matter. It was so it is so well done and so interesting and um, meticulous in its detail. And I'm surprised, quite frankly, that there isn't um, that company hasn't gone to other places around you know, doesn't have a place in Chicago, doesn't have some place where they have replicated this. Um, The idea of getting, even if it's not as immersive as Sleep No More, the idea of getting audience members up and moving to different rooms and viewing things at the same time at that moment, but then everyone having a different experience um, is so fascinating to me. Um, And I'd love I'd love to figure out a way, even on a smaller scale, that I could produce something like that. Oh, I love it. Well, since we're kind of going in the, you know, Mike, you were, what's a project you'd love to dramaturg? And Julie, what's one you'd love to produce? Um, I'm I, I'm just going to go with one that I would love to direct. And and I, I'm listening as, I'm listening it as a dream aspirational. And we may have talked about this on a past podcast, but it's the first thing that comes to mind of something that I a project I would really, really love to tackle as a director. And that's Angels in America. 
Mm, both parts Uh, if i can only do one i want to do perestroika but i you know it's an enormous undertaking and i don't think i don't know that it's a fit for the company that i currently run but it is um it's a masterwork it was one of my foundational experiences seeing the original broadway production as a 20 something living in new york um and i think that it uh it holds up beautifully if anything it's become more impactful um and yeah, I, I don't know if I need to say much more about it, but that that's my dream aspirational project is is both parts of Angels and America. I don't know, we've thrown this down and I'm hearing I'm hearing that we could uh, this might be the dream aspirational project, but come on, we can figure out how to do that. <laughs> right. Right. It'll we have stay, partners in this state. Yeah, it'll stay in the back pocket. We'll figure, maybe we'll figure it out sometime. Um, but that was a great question from Michael. Um, yes. So thank him for that. Uh, our next one comes from Sarah Marty, the, the magnificent Sarah Marty here in Madison. And she had a really sort of specific question, um, which relates to a, a change that we had gone through a number of years ago here at Forward, but is maybe relevant to some other um, considerations happening in the field. And, and her question was, what were the challenges of going from a three show to a four show season? Um, because Forward uh, had originated doing a, a three shows on our main stage um, from the beginning. And then in our 10th season, we went to a four show uh, main stage season. And that's where we've been ever since. And so um, so that's kind of a fun logistical question. I, I can I can say just um, in, in terms of what we did at Forward, from the very beginning, in the back of our minds, we thought that a four show season was the right size for our community in terms of uh, big enough to um, to make sense in terms of amortizing all of our seasonal costs um, and allowing us to employ more people and and have a little more flexibility and freedom in our programming, Um, but small enough to be able to retain our subscribers because we have a really strong and loyal subscriber base. And I think once you start getting up to five, six shows a season, you got to start offering three play or four play packages. You can't, you know, it's, our lives are much simpler being able to say, nope, you subscribe or you don't (laughs) for for our size company in our size city. Um, So four was always the goal, but we really, really wanted to make sure that we had built in um, the financial stability to take on because, you know, again, you don't make money <laughs> doing nonprofit theater. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure that the donor support and the foundation support from grants and such, the government support, which, you know, haha, if you take COVID out, it's nothing. Um, next to nothing. Shouldn't say nothing, but less than 1% of our budget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we wanted to make sure that those um, non ticket revenues were really ready to support the extra expenses of a fourth production. Um, and that those are the biggest challenges um, for us. I will also say, and maybe Julie, you could speak to this. Part of it was making sure that we had the support staff, the technical staff to um, support expanding our season. Because since we don't have a large season, most of our tech staff also work at other theaters. And so by expanding, we overlapped more with, say, the summer company schedules, and that got complicated. Well, there were certainly um, those kind of considerations that does get complicated, the, um, the backstage. We also, at the same time, 
um, went um, fully union in terms of our, our load in for lights. And, um, and that was an important consideration um, because it got bigger. It got more people. It was harder to find people to work on those shows. So every, every consideration was more expense with hopefully um, uh, the residents to uh, our patrons and, and the appreciation of that, which we saw people, people jumped on that. We went from our three to four um, play season and subscribers stayed. I will say if we were put in this position right now, where we were talking in a strategic planning session at a board and AC retreat uh, and saying, are we going to the fourth show? Is it ready? Uh, no. Um, I, I think that will be um, an impact of this pandemic for quite a while, that, that the anticipated growth of companies and looking at larger shows, looking at bigger seasons, expanding uh, performance weeks, that's going to be on hold for a while. Yeah. So Which I'm glad we did it. I'm yeah. glad we did it four years ago. Yeah. Won't stop me from dreaming that, you know, 10 years down the road, we are going to either expand to five or we will start that long awaited second series in a garage space <laughs> of avant-garde new work uh, to represent a true sort of spectrum of what forward uh, audiences are capable of watching and we're capable of staging. I, I'm being partly facetious, but not entirely. I mean, I think that um, four is awesome. I'm so excited that forward went, uh, when forward went from three to four, that's great, but you can never have enough of a good thing. Right. <laughs> Just well, a person that's say, not in the chair having to produce and direct it, but. Can I, can I say that, that our, um, our regular kind of, this is the stump speech is that we do four shows. We don't, we actually do five because we do our monologue festival and then we do our Wisconsin rights, Fair. which is. It's not, it's not an, you know, and this is our easy thing that we, we throw together. It's as um, uh, heavy in terms of workload as any one of the main stage plays, really. So I see at least 4.5 is what we're doing right now. Sure. It's a fifth column. <laughs> it's a fifth right. column, right. right. Right, right. But in terms of the the logistics of um, and and as Sarah's question is phrased, you know that the challenges mm -hmm. of doing that, um, and there were a lot of upsides. The question's not about the upsides; it's about the challenges. Right. Um, you know, we we fulfill our mission better. We get to hire more people. We have more artistic um, leeway to um, to try different kind. Like we did our first one person show in a four show season. We did our first musical when we had a four show season because we felt like we could push the envelope with some things. But right. um, it also put more strain on the staff. I mean, it was in anticipation of growing to a, a four show season that we were able to, yay, hire Julie Swenson, our managing director. Prior to that, um, I was the producing artistic director, so to speak, of Forward. And um, it, we needed more staff capacity and especially more at, at the leadership level capacity um, to do that. So that was a challenge. It wasn't just making sure we had the funds to support the extra production. It was the funds to support a, an expanded staff because now more hours need to be worked to put this whole thing together. So um, lots of logistical challenges, lots of financial uh, considerations. Um, I am 
glad that we went slow and steady to get there um, because I think that uh, helped us have the the reserves and the foundation that were able to support us when the year after we went to a four show season, we hit the pandemic. So um, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope that answers Sarah's question. Um, I'm so, you know, these are such great uh, questions people have sent and, you know, this is a, a little quick plug that uh, continue to send questions our way. Cause we will do another mailbag episode at some point uh, in the not too distant future. Um, but I also, I wanted to share, this is not so much a question as a lovely uh, email letter that we received from the amazing Linda Stevens in response to one of our prior conversations. And I just, I wanted us to read this in the podcast because I thought it was a great perspective. Um, if you don't know who Linda Stevens is, get out your Google. Um, incredible woman, incredible career. Um, we are privileged to um, count her among Wisconsin's uh, professional theater community. Um, but she was she was referring back to the episode we did uh, a few months ago about talkbacks and talking about um, how we feel about them. And this is uh, the email she sent me. So imagine this in her dulcet tones, It'll be much, much <laughs> more enjoyable than in mine. Here we go. I finally heard this latest and I love the conversation. I hear you, Jen. I hear the value and understand the value of a talkback. But here's this one actor's POV. William Hurt just passed away, and I read that he said in an interview, theater is a language I speak better or are more tuned into than English. He said a mouthful for me. I've spoken my best language when I give a performance, and to talk back to an audience in English is to ask me to speak in a second language. I know we actors are different, and some are anxious to talk about the work. I am too, frankly, because I love talking about the work, just not after a performance. The audience as individuals disappoints me. I play to the creature with a thousand eyes, not to them as individuals, but that's a minor point. You said, Jen, that you think of the theater as a service organization, and I think that's right and good, but I feel that it's the theater's job to serve the audience. I, as a freelance actor, serve the theater by telling a story for an audience, which by the end of the performance has been completed. If the theater supported a company of actors, the request to do every talk back would make more sense because then we as company actors would be part of the service organization, but we're not as freelancers. And it's not a question of payment. For me, it's that acting and talking back to an audience are two different crafts. I act better than I talk back and leaving the theater after what is always my clumsy performance in a talk back makes me feel bad. I want to leave the audience with the best I can give them. It's not my job to build or educate an audience. That's the theater's job. I've already done my job by interpreting the writer's words to the best of my ability. And then to be asked to do a talk back is to be asked to do a job that's not within the range of my best ability. It's asking me to speak another language because like William Hurt, I too speak theater better than I speak English. Well, them's my two cents. I wouldn't try to convince you to change your policy. I couldn't even if I tried, but I think it's important to hear another actor's perspective, a freelance actor's perspective. I'm hired to transform for the audience, not to have a conversation with them. And that's from Linda Stevens. And I mean, she's right. It doesn't change my personal investment about having talkbacks the way we do talkbacks at Forward, but it is a beautifully articulated point of view and one that will stick with me for a long time. And one that may very well impact how I talk about the talkbacks that we do with the artists that we hire and the, um, the, the space that I give to them 
And I will, that idea of I speak theater better than I speak English will resonate with me. And so I'm just, I'm so grateful to Linda for sending that and for giving us permission to read it. Yeah, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't change my perspective either because I remain as Linda is uh, in many ways skeptical of talkbacks, as I said, when we did the, the podcast on that. Um, but I think it really helps articulate for me as an audience member, not as an actor, why when I am so filled up with a gorgeous piece of work on stage, often I need to spend time with it alone and want to spend time processing it before I'm ready to talk. I do want to talk about that show. It's hard. Just Linda, not just for you as an actor, for audience members who have seen your beautiful work. And I can think of specific performances you've given. Um, there's no way after watching you in Road to Mecca, I would be mm -hmm. been in a position to sit there and have a discussion about that play. I was in tears, first of all, and I needed time with myself um, before I could do that. And so thank you for articulating that. If I could take one issue with what Linda has written, the idea that Linda Stevens, who is one of the most consummately brilliant conversationalists I know, mm -hmm. doesn't speak English as well as she speaks <laughs> theater is just ludicrous. And thank you for saying that. Agree, agree, Mike. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's two different things that we're talking about. I do think that there is great value in talkbacks. And to be honest, Mike, you have when you need to reflect on your own and in your own time. Yes. Respect. Love that. But you have other people then to jump into and talk about it when you're ready. Sure. We don't have audience members who then I've I've been able to distill this for two days. Let me talk to my theater friends about what I just saw. So so many times they need to talk right then because that's their opportunity. So the beauty of this is that people who want to stay can stay. Actors who want to um, participate can participate. And I'm hoping that um, the ones that are there want to be there. And we do know, Jen, we've seen time and time again, the actors that are so good at these talkbacks, so good. And, you know, and I think, please come out, please come out because you are you're wonderful. And then the actors that just aren't that comfortable doing it. And all of that is OK. And um, certainly when we work with Linda again, I'd love for her to come out and do a talk back because she really is brilliant. On the other hand, if that's not what how she's feeling comfortable or that's not how she wants to participate, that's OK, too. That's OK, too. Um, well, that's it for the questions and, and, and letters that we have today. Again, please feel free to send either our way um, at Theater Forward. We would love to hear from you. But we will say that that is it for this episode, um, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden. Um, you can follow us or share your thoughts or talk back to us as we <laughs> encourage you to do for future mailbag episodes on Facebook or Twitter. That's at Theater Forward. And as always, theater is spelled with an E-R. No room for talk back on that. That's just the <laughs> way it is. <laughs> and if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And please be sure to leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. Questions are um, encouraged. We're so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.